Section 45 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombal. Homicide, Part 22, Angie Stewart, The Murdered Child, Part 1. On the evening of December 5, 1867, a fire broke out in the basement of a frame dwelling house in the village of Canaan, Columbia County, New York. As other dwellings were in close proximity, the neighbors hastened to the burning building in response to the alarm. The house was unoccupied, excepting the basement story, which had been rented temporarily to a man known as Joseph Brown, a painter by trade, who recently had arrived in the village and who was accompanied by a woman, Josephine, whom he called his wife, and a little girl, Angie, whom he called his daughter. The fire was subdued quickly, having been confined principally to the basement pantry, where it had been smoldering some time before discovery. All of the outside doors of the house were found to be locked, and upon effecting a forced entrance into the basement kitchen, the neighbors found the pantry door tightly closed. After getting it opened and extinguishing the fire therein, the dead body of little Angie was discovered underneath the pile of partially burned rubbish. Brown and his wife were absent at a neighboring house at the time and did not reach the scene of the fire until after the charred remains of the little girl had been recovered and the fire wholly extinguished. The attendant circumstances were so questionable as to give rise to startling rumors but these finally quieted down, and the superficially conducted inquest of the coroner gave credence to a generally accepted theory that the child, while temporarily left alone in the house, had attempted to fill a lighted kerosene oil lamp, which had exploded and caused her death by burning. The following certificate was published soon after the occurrence and was sufficient to divest the affair of any degree of public interest beyond that of short-lived pity for poor little Angie. Canaan, New York, December 6, 1867. This is to certify that I have this day examined the body of Angie Brown by order of the coroner of this county, Columbia, and find that she came to her death by reason of fire communicated to her clothing and other combustible matter to me unknown, which fire was sufficient to cause her death. Azariah Judson, M.D. But the matter was destined not to rest here. Brown caused the child's remains to be boxed up for burial and removed to Granby, Connecticut, the place of his wife's former home. In company with his wife, he left Canaan for Granby, stopping en route in Westfield, Massachusetts, where they visited a lawyer's office 
and made up formal and affirmative proofs of loss under an accident insurance policy and forwarded their claim by mail to the Travelers Insurance Company. It appeared that the child had been insured against death by accident in the sum of $5,000 for the benefit of Joseph Brown, the insurance being for the term of three months and was written at the Cleveland, Ohio agency of the company under date of September 19, 1867. The mysterious circumstances surrounding the child's death were recalled under the light of this claim to recover the insurance, and the company, having its attention directed to the affair, was not slow to investigate it. It was ascertained that Brown had come from Dayton, Ohio, where he was known as Joseph Barney, and the woman as his wife, Josephine Barney. They had lived in Dayton several months, where Barney, alias Brown, had worked at his trade, that of painter. It was further learned that the little girl, Angie, was the daughter of a Mrs. Stewart, a respectable widow, residing in Dayton, and that the Barneys had obtained possession of the child on the 17th of September, with the consent of Mrs. Stewart, for the purpose of accompanying Mrs. Barney on a trip to Connecticut and return. Taking Angie Stewart with them, the Barneys went from Dayton to Cleveland, where they obtained insurance under the name of Brown upon Josephine and Angie in the sum of $5,000 each. Thence, they went to Canaan, New York, where they boarded for a while, and there rented the basement story of the house, wherein the fire was discovered shortly afterwards, as has been related. Further developments and revelations led to the arrest of Brown and his wife, who were brought from Granby to Hartford and lodged in jail. Subsequently, on a requisition from the governor of New York, they were taken to Hudson, where bills of indictment were found against Brown for the double crime of arson and murder, and his trial was fixed for the April term of court. The trial of Joseph Brown commenced April 13, 1868, and the first witness called was Mrs. Mary H. Stewart who testified that she resided in Dayton, Ohio, and that she was the mother of Angeline Stewart, whose age was 12 years. Witness recognized the prisoner at the bar and his wife, having known them in Dayton for a period of five or six months as Joseph and Josephine Barney. They left the house of witness in Dayton on the 17th of September, taking Angie with them. They said they were going to Cleveland first, where they would purchase a suit of clothes for Josephine and Angie each. After remaining in Cleveland a few days, they were then going to New York. Barney said he was going to seek work and would return to Dayton after being absent three weeks while Josephine was going on to Hartford with Angie. But if Angie should become homesick, he would bring her back to witness when he returned. It was further agreed with Barney that, upon his return to Dayton, and until his wife's return, he was to board with witness. Josephine was intending to take another little girl instead of Angie, but that girl was taken sick, 
and then the Barneys pressed urgently for Angie, saying she would be back in a short time. After much entreaty, witness consented, little thinking it would be as it is. On cross-examination, Mrs. Stewart further testified that the Barneys wanted Angie to call them father and mother, saying they thought it would be nice in traveling. Witness told them the girl was too old to call them father and mother, but finally consented to their request, though she did not tell the child to so call them. They did not speak of adopting Angie. Mrs. Barney represented to witness that she wanted her as a companion, saying that men sometimes were uncivil to a woman traveling alone, and with the child accompanying her, people would know she was married. When speaking of their return from their eastern trip, the Barneys said to witness, Mother, when we come back, we will keep the house for you, and keep it well, too. The testimony of the succeeding witnesses occupied several days and was comprehensive and conclusive. It was shown that when Brown left the house to rejoin his wife, who had gone to make a neighborly call in conformity with their arrangements, he locked the outer doors, that the door of the pantry in which the child's body was discovered opened outwardly and adhered at the bottom, and that it could not have been pulled tightly shut, as it was found, from the inside, that, as the thin dress she wore, which was minutely described, was insufficient for combustion. Other materials, obtained by splitting the shelving of the pantry, remnants of which were found, were added, and these had been saturated, apparently, with the inflammable fluids with which painters are familiar. That voluntary imprisonment in the form and manner as described in which little Angie was found was impossible. That if her dress had taken fire from the explosion of a lighted lamp while refilling it, the natural impulse to scream for aid and, if possible, to escape from the building would have been demonstrated itself in an obvious way and that the lamp theory was disproved by the fact that Angie had been using a candle. Her young friend, Harriet Silvernail, who lived in the next house, called in between half-past six and seven o'clock in the evening to invite her to go to a prayer meeting. Angie was eating her supper and a candle, about half-consumed, which attracted Harriet's observation, was burning on the table. Angie excused herself from going to meeting on the plea that her father and mother were going away. That was the last interview with anyone but her murderers. Early in the investigation of this case, the charred remains were exhumed and carefully examined by three physicians who, in their evidence during the trial, concurred in the opinion that death took place before fire was applied to the body. This opinion was based mainly upon the appearance of the trachea or windpipe and the upper portion of the lungs, which were found to be free from the evidences of irritation which would have existed if the child had respired heated air. The body appeared to have been burned while in a sitting position upon the floor, the seat being the only portion unburned. The skin covering this unburned portion was 
was found to be in a perfectly natural condition, while the partially burned clothing and remains gave a strong and unmistakable odor of turpentine. It was also in evidence that, upon the announcement of the tragic fate of Angie to Brown and his wife by their neighbors, Mrs. Brown could not conceal her brutal indifference, while the cold and cruel-hearted Brown's attempt to faint without pallor of countenance and his pretense of emotion were so ineffectual as to provoke comments of incredulity and displeasure. Dr. Judson, who keenly pitied them, was obliged to say that he saw no manifestations of grief, no tears shed. It was shown, too, that in conversations with their acquaintances, the insurance idea was uppermost in their minds. Mrs. Provost, for instance, testified, Josephine said she could get my life insured. It were anything I had, and I would be none the wiser. And if I should die, she could get the insurance money in spite of anybody. Josephine was free to declare that she herself had been insured, but cautiously concealed the fact of the simultaneous insurance of Angie. Moreover, it was shown that their purpose was to invest the sum, to be fraudulently obtained in the purchase of a farm, and that Brown was already negotiating with Mr. Buell for such purchase. Brown offered Buell $5,000 for his farm and said to the witness he would show the people of Canaan that he would have the money. Josephine playfully boxed his ears and said, Yes, maybe $10,000. He also had been in conference with Mr. Williams, proprietor of a hotel in Canaan, about buying that place. Mr. Williams fixed the price at $3,000 and told Brown that he would make the payments easy. In reply, Brown said that, if he bought, he would pay all cash. It is also worthwhile to recur to a portion of the testimony of the Hartford Lieutenant of Police who dispatched an officer for the arrest of the Browns, and who said that they were brought to the station house in Hartford and placed in different cells. That night, while they were in their cells, he heard a conversation going on between them, of which he made a memorandum in writing at the time, as follows, Joe, Joe, everybody has gone home, and it is almost light. I told the officers all I knew about the child. Brown said, You had better go to sleep and not say another word till after we have sent for a lawyer. She said, Jeffrey Phelps will be here in the morning. I told the officer I first saw the child in Dayton. Now remember that, and that you were in the country at the time. That you had been the father of two children, and one had died, and that you were a kind father. Brown said, You keep still till we see a lawyer. Go to sleep now. She said, I can't, but I'll try. I told him you kept those policies in that coat pocket, the coat you had on in Westfield, the coat you bought in Ohio. Do you understand? Brown said, yes. She said, well, remember. At this stage of the conversation, the lieutenant interrupted her and told her to stop talking or he would place her in a dark cell. 
The lieutenant subsequently had a long interview with Brown, and the conversation was fully reported and read in court. Brown's answers to questions propounded proved to be a tissue of falsehoods. He said, for instance, that he left a former wife, whom he represented as Angie's mother, in Canada because of her habitual intoxication, and that she afterwards died in Montreal. Probably the only truthful remark he made was, upon realizing his situation, I have told the insurance company that I would give them the policy if they would let me go. The defense was unable to produce any evidence to satisfactorily explain away the fearful position in which Brown had been placed by the prosecution. The learned and able counsel for the prisoner did the best that could be done with the slender materials at his command. Mrs. Lydia Fox was called to say that she resided in Granby, Connecticut, and was the mother of Mrs. Josephine Brown, who was married to the prisoner two years previously, and that she never knew of their going by any other name than that of Brown. On cross-examination, it appeared that she had no knowledge of their marriage, other than that she had seen an announcement of such marriage in some newspaper, and that she had never seen Brown until the time he came to Granby with Josephine, for the purpose of interring the remains of Angie. Furthermore, a letter from Mrs. Fox to Josephine was produced, wherein it appeared that the witness had heard Josephine was not married to Brown. Mr. Drown, called by the defense, said that Brown worked for him on the forenoon of the day of the fire, quit about 12 o'clock, and quit because he had finished his job of work. A few witnesses were interrogated with an effort to show that the alleged fainting fit of Brown was real and not feigned, that the heap of charred rubbish found upon the dead body of the child, was occasioned by knocking down the pantry partition, and that the pantry door which swung into the kitchen was not difficult to open, although it had settled from the top, and only by pushing hard, or by putting the foot against it at the bottom, would it crowd shut. The learned counsel then addressed the jury in behalf of the prisoner, going over the evidence in detail and at great length. He assailed the evidence of the medical experts who had testified, devoting much time to show that it had not been proved that the child was dead before burning. He called the jury's attention to the fact that there was plenty of evidence to explain the death of the child upon the idea that she had set herself on fire accidentally by some mysterious means. She had a light. She had explosive materials. Every requisite for the production of the effects which were produced. He remarked that much had been said by the district attorney in his opening statement about the motive of Brown to commit murder. Brown had a policy of insurance upon Angie's life for $5,000, which he supposed would come to him in case of death. But if he had such an idea, it was a mistaken one. He had no insurable interest in the child, and the insurance was, of course, null and void. Motives, said the counsel, exist in regard to everything. No man does anything without motive, 
and the only motive established here was that Brown, perhaps, believed at the time he took the policy that he would reap the benefit in case of Angie's death. Motives are always looked for because you cannot ordinarily convict without a motive. It is unreasonable to suppose that a person in sound mind will commit homicide without a motive. It does not follow because there is a possible motive found that the person did actually commit the homicide. You must have proof to convict Joseph Brown, as though there was entire absence of motive for the crime. End of section 45.